Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire. Jeff, could you maybe laugh just a little bit less? Come on, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here and thank you for subscribing. So today I am talking to Dan Erickson. Dan's site is at hipdigs, H-I-P-D-I-G-G-S dot com. He's also got uh, danerickson.net, which is, um, as they used to say back in the old web days, under construction. He's, uh, he's about to redo the whole thing. So his main site today is the HipDig site. So... Wow. Uh, this was a lot of one of those like wow type of uh, stories that Dan, Dan's life was like, um, uh, well, it's a trilogy, really. Um, so Dan grew up uh, in a cult, like from ages like 8 to 16. I think I'm close there, maybe 10 to 16, something like that. So anyway, we talk about his days as a slave boy in a cult. And, uh, and then how he escaped from there and then went into foster care and then, and then basically didn't know it at the time, but was a victim of PTSD and some, um, very fearful brain circuitry from his childhood. Uh, and you know, back in the, these days, uh, back in the seventies, you didn't, there was no therapy for free. So Dan actually did his own version of therapy through music and poetry and blogging, and he blogged a book. His first book was called, let me make sure I get the title right, A Train Called Forgiveness. Uh, And then he's actually wrote another book after that called At the Crossing of Justice and Mercy. I hope I'm getting those titles right. I'll I'll double check. Um, And he's also writing the third book in that trilogy um, all about... um, how the different phases of his life were affected by that cult experience um, as a child. So uh, we're all over uh, the place. Mostly we talk about his days in the cult and then just after the cult and then we talk about the book. But then he's also, um, his hip dig site is really about how to live life more simply. Um, and you could call that minimalist, but it's not really minimalist. But anyway, we talk about uh, that that word and, and how it means different things to different people. But Dan definitely likes to live simply. And, uh, and that's a great message. Um, unbusy yourself and, and uh, simplify your life. Yes, I concur with that. Hmm. Vroom, vroom, veer. So without any further ado, please enjoy my chat with Dan Erickson of Hip digs.com are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up frenzied and far too often scripted life then welcome to vroom vroom veer with jeff smith 
where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to vroom vroom veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Hello, Dan Erickson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad to be here, and thanks for having me. No problemo. And you are on a phone, so we'll just say, sorry, everybody out there, but this is the best we could do in short notice. <laughs> and I appreciate yeah, well, Dan, you know, Dan for, uh, it, for taking the time out to talk to me on the phone. And I appreciate you uh, offering me uh, the interview time. And, you know, the reason I'm on the phone is... is Part of my goal is to live more minimally, and I take the internet off for the summer. So I love that idea. Yeah, yeah it, it, especially with kids, it gets your kids out and doing things. You know, you got to and you got to go out there with them and get things. It's a done, good way to go. get out of the house, right? <laughs> exactly. So, if you want internet, you have to drive to it. Pretty much, or or use the little bit I have on my cell phone. Right, right. My smartphone. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I love it. So uh, let's talk yeah. a little bit about your vrooming and veering. Um, so uh, I'm I'm familiar with just pieces of of your story that I heard on uh, Jared Easley's Starve the Doubt podcast. So mm-hmm. I know that uh, I don't really remember how you got there, but somehow you ended up being um, in a cult as a child. So let's get into yes. that. So how did that happen? Sure. Um, well, you know, my dad was actually a minister when I was a kid. Okay. And he, he, had, he was kind of a seeker, too. And he was always searching for something a little more than what organized religion was offering. And this was back in the 60s, 70s, late 60s to early 70s. And he met uh, a, a man. Um, we were living on the East Coast at the time. And he met a man there who said, well, I'm starting a group out west. Uh, in Washington State, which is where I still reside. And, and so m- my dad basically decided that the whole family would um, move to be part of this man's group. Okay. And I was 10 years old when we moved. I guess it was 10 years old. I'd been out in 1973. So we moved out there, and you know, at, at first I... I didn't know what was going on, but after a while, I realized it wasn't normal because I was actually becoming uh, basically a slave because I wound up working long hours uh, by the time I turned 11. The first year, they didn't have me work much, but when I turned 11, that summer I turned 11, I started working long hours, um, actually living right on the premise of a 40-acre uh, area they had, 40-acre piece of land. Like a compound and, is yeah. what they call them, right? <laughs> it was like a compound. Yeah, right. It was a, you know, th- this group was different in some ways. It wasn't a group where everybody lived on the grounds or on the okay. compound. Okay. It was a group where mostly just the younger people um, from ages about 12 up to about 30 lived on the ground. So my my parents and my younger brother and sister still lived at home. Okay. But myself and my two older brothers lived on the compound. Wow. Damn. Yeah. Okay. So how long did that last? 
Well, at first it was just summers. Okay. I'd work in the summer, and then I'd also work after school, and then my parents would come, my dad would come pick me up, and I'd go back home. Um, I think for two years I lived there full year-round, and I think it was my eighth and ninth grade year in, in school, okay. if I remember right. And then in my 10th grade year, they actually sent me back home. Uh, there was a reason for that. They were beginning to be investigated, and they, they sent all the kids under 18 back home. I didn't know they were being investigated at the time, but right. in hindsight, that's what I discovered. And wow. so I was sent back home in 10th grade, and then at the end of 10th grade was when things started to break up, and I was removed uh, from the, the group. Wow. So was there like a lot of like uh, the scary culty brain control, mind control sorts of things going on? Uh, you know, it was religious based. Okay. The leader used the Bible as his main tool for, you know, he preached, um, but he had some ideas that were, you know, uh, off center. They, they weren't traditional Christian ideas. Um, he even at one point claimed that he was Michael the Archangel. Wow. Um, you know, and he, he, he had a lot of emphasis on the Old Testament um, and, and something that is referred to, I think, as manifest destiny. My goodness. Um, which I think means this is your destiny because God, uh, you know, manifested it. Right, and, right. And so that was the whole group. We were a special group of people. Um, we were going to prepare for the rest of the world when end times came. You know, that was kind of part of the message. Um, as far as mind control, I don't see it as, you know, some kind of weird mind control, but uh, just... They were actually literally working, controlling you, so they didn't yeah, need between the mind working, control. Right? Yeah. yeah, well, between working and, and the, the meetings were very long. So, for instance... You know, a regular church service is about an hour, right? Right. Well, or, or, you know, the actual sermon is usually only about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, this guy went on for anywhere from two to five hours twice a week. Wow. Uh, during his meetings. And they went, you know, they started at 7, 8 o'clock, and they went until midnight kind of thing. And those are required. Um, and, oh. and it was required, yes. Right. Everybody went, um, unless you were sick, and you might get a day off. Um, and... His delivery, you know, I, I'm also a, a public speaking teacher, and I, I studied rhetoric and persuasion, and I believe it was his delivery that also was very hypnotic, okay. and that he, he'd, he'd go from a whisper and, and, you know, very quiet talking to everyone in a very gentle voice, um, and get everybody on the edge of their seats listening to them, you know, to him, and, and then he'd scream. You know, and, and uh, you know, like thunder, and, yeah. and he do this and it, it, back and forth, and it's very hypnotic. Now I don't know if that was just his delivery style or if he purposefully was trying to um, hypnotize people. I don't know. Um, you know, it's frightening. That's, what he did. that's he also, definitely frightening. What if? Yeah, yeah. Also, I remember being a kid uh, oscillating between whispers and screams, uh, and that was it was nightmarish. I remember that. Uh, and I don't yeah. know where that came from, but, you know, I, something in my little kid, I mean, very, very little kid, Psyche, 
had this programming where I would hear like a whisper and then a bunch of screaming after it. And that was always the, the nightmare kind of scenario. Yeah. So I, I can relate that, that that's a very powerful sort of like a technique, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, he also claimed, made claims of, like I said, being Michael the Archangel. He made uh, claims that if anybody left, bad things would happen to them. They'd have a heart attack. They'd get sick. They'd get in a car accident. So brainwashy kind of um, stuff. Yeah. And, you know, he, he even said he had connections to the mafia, you know, and if you left, he has connections and he'd find you. Wow. You know, so those were some of the things that he would tell people, you know, and, and and you're going from like 10 yeah exactly right this is yeah, your 10 world. to 16 right was right. was the age range there and, and i gotta say though that um i was skeptical good I, even though i was a kid i was always skeptical going, is this real is this i mean is this i, I always thought something wasn't right and it didn't add up now that doesn't mean that that I wasn't affected by by the group, by, by what happened. But right. I was skeptical, and I never wanted to, I re- really didn't want to be a part of it. I was only a part of it because my parents said I had to be. Right. You were doing it under silent protest the whole time, it seems like. Exactly. Wow. So, now, and I remember on Jared's um, podcast that there was, a, there was basically... That he was he was using his nonprofit status as a church, and then and then basically doing business right, and making a ton of yeah, money. Yeah, well, basically he had. There were gosh, uh, there were probably a dozen businesses, um, and then there was one nonprofit organization. So basically, what he did is he hired everybody under the pretense of being in training programs. Right. And so they worked for these businesses, but they're actually um, in training programs for the nonprofit. Interesting. So, so yeah. he's getting so, like so next all, to free labor, basically, or free labor, slave yeah. labor. Yeah. Well, it was free for. It was free for for the younger the younger kids were working for free. I was working for free. In time, I started getting a fifteen dollar a month allowance. Wow. Um, <laughs> some of the older men and women that were, you know, in their 20s and early 30s um, made a little bit of money. They may have made a hundred bucks a month or something, but, you know, we're talking probably, even though it was the 70s, late 70s, we're talking it was probably, you know, at least a thousand dollars worth of work at minimum wage kind of thing, and they're getting a hundred fifty dollars a month. Wow. Jeez. So essentially it was free or very cheap labor. So the basically the thing all fell apart because somebody got a whiff of it and then the authorities came in and got everybody out of there. Did the whole thing fall apart? Uh, not quite. Okay. Uh, kind of, but um, he had been taking some liberties with uh, some of the women. Okay. And age was not a factor in his mind. Oh, jeez. And so, therefore, he had basically committed some statutory rape and indecent liberties. Wow, okay. And so that had been reported at some point a year or so prior to when things started breaking up. Okay. 
so that you know that was reported when they started investigating him, and so the investigation was underway. Um, must have been about seventy-seven. Uh, in seventy-eight, I believe it was, or seventy-nine. The seventy it must start about seventy-eight. The investigation, seventy-nine, I think it was, was the year I got out. And I got out in a strange way because I didn't even know the investigation was taking place. But I had a friend who was also in the group who had been a very good kid, right? He always did what he was supposed to. He, he liked this, the group. He was a good boy, right? Um, got the better jobs because he was good. Okay. But then his mom died. His mom died. And when his mom died, she said, I'm sorry I ever got you into this group. I, it's not right. You need to get out. And so after his mom died, he came to me and he said, Dan, can you help me get out? I said, okay, because he knew I didn't like it there. Right. And so I devised a plan. I stayed home from school when I knew my mom was going to be gone because I was back living at home at this time. Okay. And I wrote a letter that was going to be sent to the Everett Herald, which was a local um, newspaper. Um, the next day I took it and gave it to my friend. Um, and he happened to leave his pants in his bedroom and his stepdad found them and his stepdad was a member of the cult and right. his stepdad gave that letter to the leader of the cult. Oh no, that can't Which be wasn't good. good for us because, because, you know, my friend and I were, were, you know, brought in in front of everybody at a meeting and we were intimidated and everything short of being beat up, you know, water thrown in our face and our collars, you know, put, twisted and pushed up against the wall and, you know, that kind of stuff. They were definitely they doing, yeah, scare tactics. Right. They would have gone further, except they were under investigation. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, they because they, they had gone further with other people in the past. Jeez. You know, when, when somebody did something that went against them. So, um, little did I know that one of the, the young men in that in that meeting was playing both sides. He was already in touch with the investigators, and he was still coming to the meetings. Okay, so he was so he like a double that agent. In, yeah, he reported that incident, and my friend and I uh, both were taken out of uh, a field trip. With, uh, we were with, uh, on a field trip with our public school. We still went to public school, and we were inter- the bus was intercepted on the way back from this field trip, and we were taken into foster care. Now, about Two or three weeks after that happened, the arrest was made of the leader, um, and and he was uh, put in jail and went through uh, mental health uh, evaluations and considered a sexual psychopath. Um, and then he still, you know, served. I think he served about six years of prison time after a year or so in in um, a mental health institution. You know, he went through the whole trial and everything. And he was found guilty. Yeah. Uh, so around that time, when he was arrested, the group slowly started falling apart. Um, there were still a core of people that remained loyal to him. And as far as I know, there's still a small core of people, although he has reportedly died. Um, there are still core people that still are together as some kind of group. They, My older brother and I have kind of researched a little bit, and they seem to move around a lot. We don't know why, but they've moved from Ar- to Arkansas and then to Santa Fe and, and then to Colorado, and now I think they're in Montana. Wow. 
Wow. So you were basically then, now you're a victim of PTSD almost. Yeah, you know, back in the day, I don't think we knew about that. Right. But you were, I mean, it you, may have, in retrospect, uh, right? Absolutely. And, and uh, I, you know, when, when I was taken out of that cult, you know, that was 1979. And yeah. no one thought of, I wonder what the effects of this cult are on this, these kids. I wonder if they need some kind of um, therapy or, you know, just we pull you out, you put you in foster home, everything's okay. Oh, geez. That, that's, that's what happened. You know, nowadays, if this would happen, I'm almost positive they'd immediately get them into therapy. Yeah, one would hope. But but it didn't happen then. Right. Um, and so, yeah, PTSD is very probable. I never thought of myself of having PTSD, but over the years I realize um, I probably do. And, you know, it showed in my 20s, and at the time I thought it was drug and alcohol related, and it may have been partially but I started having a lot of um, anxiety and paranoia, thinking that uh, the, the leaders of that cult, you know, that he was he had gotten out of jail and he was coming back to find me and he was going to try to, you know, kill me or something for yeah. because I was involved and yeah. and bringing him down, you know, in a way, right? You know, right, so right, right. so so I started having these fears and they they really led to just overall paranoia, where I actually thought people were out. To kill me, but they were for a period all, of time. Those are all like, you know, real. I mean, it might have been true. You weren't being. Uh, it might have been, but it was. I don't think right. it was true, right? But but it was true in my mind. Sure, sure. And sure. you know, and I would literally, you know, there was a night I remember I thought somebody was coming for me, and I literally went out, and I, it was like two in the morning, and I literally ran across this town of about 30,000 people from one end to the other to try to make sure I was getting away, jumping, going through people's backyards because I didn't want anybody to see me. And, wow. and I jumped a fence. And, and then later on, I realized that I'd sliced my hand open on, on the fence. You know, I was just wow. totally, you know, running on adrenaline because I thought somebody was out to get me. That's, that's pretty amazing. Um, I, I had another thought here. The, um, when I did my psychology degree, I was surprised to find out that um, a lot of people that end up in the county system for mental health are um, masking their mental illness with drug and alcohol addiction. It's very... That doesn't... You no, know, it doesn't... It, you know, when, when you hear it, you know, you say, oh, of course. But the, yeah. the, the, the answer is sad. Um, because basically at an unconscious level, they understand, you know, these people that are mentally ill, they understand that, um, as bad as it is, the, 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 the mask of the addict is more acceptable to them on the inside than the mask of, I have mental illness. Right. But that mask from my experience only works so long. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is. And, I mean, it's just a. It's just like so I, I, yeah, I had to take it off. Right. You know, other, otherwise, I would. I don't even know if I'd be alive today. Of course not. You know, yeah, because yeah. I probably would have either gone down a road of complete addiction or become suicidal. You know, with with the things I was struggling with. Right. Right. 
Yeah, and 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 especially because you were so young, that meant that your your wiring that you still have today is uh, wired with like some pretty horrific, you know, myelated circuits. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's that's got to be um, a whole lot of uh, recovery efforts on your part. To- and, and it's still, you know. I had the extreme paranoia where I, you know, thought people were out, literally out to kill me in my twenties. And, and you know, I'm I'm in my early fifties now, okay. and uh, I'm turning fifty-two in about a week. So uh, it, it's it's gotten milder and milder. But there are still things like if I, um, you know, have a, a a pain in my side or something, I'll start getting all paranoid that there's you know hypochondriac type paranoia. You know, and and think that there's something wrong with me, or, or if uh, I just throughout my life I have still have these episodes where I start having paranoia, fear, and anxiety. It's less than it used to be, right. and I've learned I've learned that how to deal with it. You know, and say, look, I know I'm slipping again, and I I have got to get myself together. I usually do it through exercise, is about the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still happens, and, sure, and it still, still probably goes back to those, like you say, the wiring from as a exactly. kid. Yes, yes, yeah. Because your your most your, you know basically your brain is you know sort of like still forming how things are basically. So if you get that that really you know sort of like scared. Um, horrific, you know, being controlled, not feeling loved and feeling um, afraid a lot, um, then, yeah, you're, it's not, you know, that's the sort of wiring that you hear about when you, when you hear about people that become addicts and then have to en- go through therapy and depression and, and recovery, basically, yeah. Yeah, and, and for, for me, the best route of, kind of changing that wiring is to communicate about it, to write a book, to write songs, to write poetry, to um, do interviews like this right? and, and talk and about it. it. And the yeah. more, the more we talk about it and share it, and that's the way it kind of works in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? you know, or Narcotics Anonymous is the more they share, the less likely they are to relapse. Right. Is, is, is what I've seen with, with, you know, people I've known that have been in those programs. Yeah. Um, and so it's the same thing here. Yeah. So did you, end, did you ever end up get, uh, seeking therapy? You know, I went once in my mid twenties when, when it was at the worst, when I was in the most fearful state and the guy didn't really sense it was that bad. He sensed it was all in my head. I, I and I couldn't afford it. Okay. So I went once and I paid the guy and I said, you know, I didn't have any insurance or anything. And, and I, I didn't, I never went back. Mm, um, gotcha. So all my therapy is pretty much self-directed therapy. Right. Right. Self, yeah. Self-therapy. Well, Hey, so it, maybe wrong. I may have done it all wrong. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You seem pretty happy today. Well, generally, generally speaking, so I want to, you know, I want to, yeah, well, nobody's happy all the time, but yeah, you sure. definitely had a, a hard, tough road. And, uh, and then I think 
let's talk about how you um, you processed um, some of those, you know, that that wiring uh, in your first book. Because you said that that basically the writing of your book and your poetry and the blogs and everything that you're doing in your creative life is basically your therapy method, which I love. That's, that's right. amazing. Yeah. So what's your first book about? Uh, the first book is, it's called A, tr- um, a Train um, a train Called Forgiveness. Right. And um, it's essentially about myself in a character, um, Andy Burden is the name of the character in the book. Uh, and he is in his mid to late 20s and he's struggling with extreme anxiety um, and fear and paranoia living in a little trailer in the middle of an apple orchard. And that's really, uh, uh, my biography is just fictionalized. Okay. Right. Um, I changed names and places just to protect people's, you know, uh, people's personalities. And so, so he's, he's in this state of being afraid all the time. And, and he starts realizing, well, maybe this fear comes from my childhood in a cult. And so the book is written in a very unique format. It was experimental. I wrote it originally on um, my blog when I first started my blog. Okay. And I wrote I wrote about a page or two a day, and I decided, well, you know, you just have to keep scrolling down and down and down. And so I decided I needed a way to to have short sections. So each chapter has sub chapters. Each chapter is titled in this 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, so a person can be scrolling down. So that's one thing that's unique about it. Another thing that's unique about it is I tried to write the book as if one out of two things. Either I'm sitting in a bar talking to the guy next to me, okay, or I'm sitting in a therapist's office telling him my story. Uh, very, very simple writing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, short sentences, very concise, um, as if a person's just letting everything out. And, and so the way it was written in itself was therapeutical because I was writing as if I were telling my story to a therapist. Um, and then it goes back and forth very quickly. So there, uh, these short subchapters would go back and forth from Andy Burden in his 20s dealing with his current situation. And what he's doing is he's taking a train, which I really did. I took trains all around the country in my mid twenties. I, I think that was probably to try to find myself, so to speak. Okay. And so he's taking this train around the country, um, trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life, trying to deal with his fear and anxiety. Um, and then at the same time, it's going back and forth, telling the story of his childhood and a cult and, and things that happened in, in the cult. Um, and, and so that was very therapeutical in, in that it's looking at two, you know, because I wrote it when I was in my 40s, so it's looking at two different um, traumatic parts of my life at once. It's looking at that, the, the childhood of a cult, and it's looking at the trauma of uh, the after effects, you know, the, the, the PTSD. Right, right, right. So you, uh, you explained a little bit um to Jared on his show that basically this became like a roadmap to, to forgiveness. And that's where the, the part of the title came from. So yeah. can you and, describe like uh, the process of, 
of why you chose to go down the, the, that road and, and aim yeah, at and, forgiveness, and, basically? Sure. The, the, the book um, mirrored forgiveness that I, you know, dealt with earlier in my life. Okay. Um, I, again, it was probably the mid-20s. In my mid-20s, when I was struggling with, with you know, my past and with uh, what I thought were voices in my voices talking to me in my head and people out to get me, um, I, I also started reading the Bible a lot because I thought, well, gosh, you know, I need something in my life to, to be an anchor. And and so, you know, and there are a lot of messages in the Bible about forgiveness. And, and so I, based on my understanding of biblical forgiveness, I said, well, I, you know, I need, I, I know what's wrong here. I'm angry at at these people who hurt me as a kid, and I need to forgive them because the anger is not going to help me any. And so I must have been, I remember the time very well. I was actually in a little trailer I was living in. I remember actually getting on my knees and praying and then saying, "I, you know, I forgive you. Uh, Ted Ronaldo is the name of the man who led the cult. And I forgive you, mom and dad. And I forgive you. And I, I've mentioned all these different people that I felt I was angry at. And and so I did. I forgave, but that's only the beginning of the process. Right. You know, a lot of people say you can say a it. A lot but of people say, "Oh, you feel for, it. You right. forgive and forget," or you know, but that doesn't just because you break down and say, "I forgive all these different people," doesn't mean there's not still anger there. It's almost like it's you're still, setting an intention to be forgiving towards those folks at that moment, right there. <laughs> And the exactly. process will unfold from there. So uh, from there, how, and it can take years, the rest sure. of your life, maybe even. Right, right. You know, right. So, did you reconnect with your parents after, or what was the timeline there? Because you said yeah, you went a, immediately into foster care. Yeah, there was. They tried the the, the foster system. Uh, after about one month, the the court said, "Oh, well, he can go back home." after about a month or two in foster care. And I went back home and the group was still going. It wasn't completely broken up yet. And my dad was pressuring me pretty heavy to get back into it. And so he so was I still in my it. Case. Wow. Okay. He was still in it. It was just a couple months after, you know, the leader was arrested. Jeez. I mean, maybe not even a couple months. A so month, your maybe, dad had, had, had drank the Kool-Aid in the proverbial. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. At that point he had right. drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and so, I called my caseworker up and said, look, they're trying to, my dad's trying to force me back into this thing. And so I went back into foster care. Um, I was about 16 and I stayed in foster care the next two years. I, my parents actually on the recommendation of the leader of the cult actually took me to court or I took them to, I don't remember. There was a court hearing to decide whether I was going to be in or out of foster care until I was 18. Um, and then it was decided that I'd be awarded the court. Wow. Um, and not go back and live right, with my parents right, right. because my parents were pressuring me to go back into the cult. Now, within a year or two after that, um, the cult broke up so much that they were getting out too. And, you know, I, I'd say it took about nine months to a year and then we reestablished uh, some a relationship. Um, my dad changed over the years and my, he got involved in another group, not as cult-like, but still a little off. Right, um, and then his last five years of his life, he passed away about five years ago. But the last five years of his life, he was actually doing a lot of independent study about mysticism and um, a lot of different 
older Christian um, ideals aren't mainstream. Right. And, and he was actually one of, you know, even though he got me into that group, he was actually, I think, toward the end of his life, one of the most, um, had more spiritual insight than most people. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, you were able to reconnect, yeah. and 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 seems like there were some healing moments there. Sure, and in, in the series, the, the Culturology series, um, he plays a big role in that series. Uh, in in that, even though he's already passed, the, the, he's there with his son Andy Burden through all these different things that happened to him and all the fears and. So it's it's kind of interweaved into the story. Yeah, I'm fascinated, and I'm, I really kind of want to read these books now. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I know uh, um, I know they're fiction, but the, they're, they're it's a thinly veiled fiction. So uh, that's that's got to be something to have that out there in the world. So that's that's pretty amazing, and good for you because uh, I agree with your therapy method of. Uh, the shame share. I'm sure there was like shame and guilt and all these, um, you know, got no choice to process them, but oh my God, they still suck anyway, uh, emotions that you've got to deal with. So, um, the second book is called at the crossing of mercy and justice. And this is where, uh, it's the second book, right? Yeah. It's, it's actually at just at the crossing of justice and mercy. Oh, I same, got it wrong. Same okay. crossing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> um, a, <laughs> I just I just but, transposed but, them. I, I apologize. Yeah, uh, no problem. You know, I originally was not going to write a second book. Okay. It made in a way it made no sense to write a second book. It's like, well, the story's been told about my childhood occult. What more can I say? Uh-huh. And what the happened? Story is, goes on though. Yeah. What happened is my older brother one day sends me an email. It was, I think it was on New Year's Eve. And so that's where the book starts out, is this, this email I get. And his email said, I think the, the, the man who led the cult's name was Ted Ronaldo, and the book is named as Peter Smith. Um, but he said, I think Ted Ronaldo is still alive. You know, supposedly he had died in 2000 or 2001, I think it was, 2000 or 2001. You know, and then this is 2012, 2013, and my brother's telling me, I think he's still alive. And so the two of us did a bunch of research. She had, we found um, information that there was a corporation still under, uh, named after him, and uh, we did more research. And we finally came to the conclusion that he probably wasn't actually alive. Okay. That he, we, found a, we found a death certificate. It was a little shady. didn't have a coroner's signature on it. But um, we decided he probably really had passed. But you never know, you know. And so, but the thought of him still being alive and faking his own death was intriguing. And so I thought, well, well that's a great premise for a book. Is, <laughs> right, okay. You know, here's this guy, Andy Burton, 20 years later. You know, he's in his 20s when he wrote his first book, and now he's in his 40s, and he gets this message that the leader of the cult might still be alive. And so he goes out searching for him. Um you know, and I can't tell you a whole lot more, or, or yeah, it ruins I the ruin book. the story. Right, right, I get but, it. But, but he goes out searching for uh, the cult leader um, to find out if he's still alive or not. And there's a third book, so that probably gives you a little insight what happened in the second. But Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still writing the third book, right? It's, it's sitting at home. It's been... 
it's the first draft is written. Uh, the editor got it back to me just a few weeks ago, and I I'm gonna get to it soon. I'm I'm doing some other things right now, but I'm gonna get to writing re- the rewrite uh, here over the summer and early in the fall. Probably it'll probably be done by late this year, early next year. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, I, I'm. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing with me and uh, yeah. and our friend there driving, you know, and or working out or doing chores around the house. Um, that was pretty. You got, you, you've got an amazing story, and you've also got this uh, really great book um, that you give away for free on your website. Let me make sure I get that name right. Let's see if I can not screw that up. The is it called the Happiness of Simple? Yeah, the Happiness yeah. of Simple, and that's on my. My Hit Digs website, right. hitdigs.com. I, I, I currently have a few websites, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some downsizing here in the near future. So I'll keep the hitdigs.com. I'm going to redesign danerickson.net and kind of start over on it yeah. um, here in a few months. Because I, when I started that site, I really didn't know what I was doing. And now I've got so many dead links and things in the right, back right, that I don't right. like anymore. You know, so I want to clean it all up and start again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but hitbigs.com is a site about um, simple living. Okay. Uh, minimal, minimalism, if you will. Although I'm not really a minimalist, I'm, I, I kind of aspire to live with less than most people. Okay. And I do live with less than I think most people. Okay. And I'd like to live with less, even less. But I have a kid, and I gotta, you know, provide a decent home and some of the creature comforts. Of course. And so uh, that that book, the happiness of simple. The idea of that is is sim- simplicity leads to happiness. I agree. It, um, you know, when we try to do too much or buy too much or own too much, we complicate our lives. And that only bogs us down. So simplicity leads to happiness. Um, and when, you're, when you have happiness and a lot of extra time and space in your life, that leads to the ability to be more productive. So the, I think the subtitle of that book, it's been a while, I think it's uh, Finding Connections Between uh, Simplicity, Happiness, and Productivity. Or uh, might be... A, Different order. I might have you got it right. You got three. it right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Making connections between happiness, simplicity, and productivity, which is amazing. But when you think about it, it didn't make sense because you said that, and while you were on Jared's podcast too, where you said as you start like deleting these unnecessary things that are just basically these loops running, you know, and and you're doing them, and you think you're enjoying them, but you're not. You know, you're just, no. they're just there and you, they're, they're a habit. You don't need them, you know. And, and when I read your book, I, I wanted to aspire to a, say, 45 to 90 day TV fast. Um, yeah. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. You know, because it sure. seems like I've got my parents when I grew up. So my myelated circuits are a lot def- different than yours. But one of the things that I'd like to clean out of my head is this TV thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I get, I'm 46. So, you know, um, you and I are really close uh, generation wise. So um, my mom and dad, they're, they're TV on people. You know, when, whenever they're home, they've got, you know, probably two TVs on, if not three. Right. 
you know? Right, and they're always running. They're always on. Yeah, it's the yeah. always on TV generation. <laughs> when I when I That's when I, I yeah, when I tell them that I got rid of cable and I'm internet only. They don't even know what I would do, you know. But you know, right. of course, you can watch TV on the internet. That's what I do. Right, right, right. Yeah, I got a book right in front of me called Always On. Oh, you really? It's a, yeah, it's by a guy named Brian X Chin, and it's about you know the always on generation. It's more about the iPhone than it is TV. Oh, right, uh, right, about, right. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the problems it can create and the, the, the positive aspects of being always on, too. It it's, covers both. But yeah, all, and, you know, that's got to affect your psyche, too, to constantly be bombarded with um, television media. Well, here's media the thing is, uh, I don't know when. It was, like, recently, say, since 2003, um, I basically didn't, when we moved here, we didn't get cable. We got basic cable and internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. and then for a while we didn't have any TV and that's where we're at again. We, there's no TV right. service, only internet service. Now we have yeah. TV, but it's just the rabbit ears thing. Okay. Sure. That's all I have at home too. Right, yeah. right, it's right. Just- Right, broadcast TV, and, and I've gone periods of time where I didn't even have a TV in my house. Good for years you. at a yeah. time. Actually, good for you. Yeah, uh, I got a kid now, and and you know she's become one who likes to watch TV, and I got to be careful with that because when I, you know I have a smart TV and I put Netflix on it for a while, and she just wanted to zone out in front of the TV all the time. Right, right, so I took, right. I took Netflix off for a while. I said, you know what, we're gonna take. Looks away for a while. Let's just put that and, on And now she's just got right. the broadcast TV and doesn't watch as much. Yeah, you know, and the the good there's there's goods and bads on both sides of that on that fence. But Netflix is uh, very much a binge sort of situation. Um, you know, yeah. you, you know, you can watch a whole season all at once, right? And that's right. That's yeah. something we couldn't do before. You know, which is, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> And the same thing with YouTube on TV, you know, on a smart TV. My right. daughter started watching out of all shows. She found the old show, The Love Boat. <laughs> and she wanted to watch every episode of The Love Boat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You remember that show, I right? I do. <laughs> That's why I'm laughing so hard. And it was it was on right before Fantasy Island. <laughs> That's right. She, I, she hasn't. She hasn't. She hasn't discovered Fantasy Island yet. She saw the Love Boat on Me TV or something. Yeah. You know, one episode, and then she found it on YouTube. Right. And, and started watching. You know, Binging. I think she's through a couple seasons. <laughs> wow. Of course, she can't watch now because I, we don't have internet, so she can't hit YouTube for the summer. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. So, so, so anyway, the, the minimalism. Um, you know, I, I think when we let go of stuff it really does give us time to think. I'm reading a book right now. I've kind of started a while ago, then set it down and picked it back up called Essentialism. Um, Greg McCallum, I think, or McCone. You're the second guest that's mentioned that book. Uh Yeah. That means I have to read it for real now. Uh, And it's about, his is more from a business perspective rather than a living. You know, I think this, I have the same kind of thoughts in more of a living perspective, but from a business perspective, he says, look, we have all these meetings that just take up our time and don't allow us to think. You know, we, we, we put our effort, we're scattered. We, we put our effort into 25 
30 different little projects when we really should decide which big project we should focus on. Right. You know? totally. And it's, it's good stuff. It's a good book. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what minimalism is too, in a way. Although I think minimalism has kind of got a little bit of a misunderstood uh, name. If you think of uh, websites like the minimalist.com and um, becoming minimalist, I'm with Joshua. It's more like a s- related to stuff and anti-consumerism, right? Right, and which which I think that's good. Okay, but there's more to it. Though. But traditionally, the, the word minimalism um, was a form of art or music or architecture. Okay, and it meant um, to have, be sparse and have very little flourish. And so what they've done is they've taken that term and applied it to a lifestyle. Right, and I don't think it fits quite right. Because some people will say, I'm a minimalist, I live in a little tiny house. Right. And another person might say, well, I'm a minimalist, I have a nice-sized house, but I hardly have anything in it. Right. And another person might say, I'm a minimalist, I only own 100 things. Right. Or and, I, and I, don't I, I have a rolly bag, and, and, and I, I go from uh, B&B to B&B, or Airbnb to Airbnb. Those people right. are calling themselves minimalist, too. So. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's quite right. And so I've started been, sort of been trying to redefine. I, I just read a book on pragmatism, which is more philosophical. Yeah. Um, but, but I think what I'm doing is more, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to a 500, 300 square foot house or 200 square foot house. I've got a 1200 square foot house. Yeah. And, and, and I, I have some, you know, I have a dishwasher in my house and, and some of the creature comforts, but I don't go out and buy things I don't really need. And I constantly um, ask myself, what I do need and let things go. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I aspire when my daughter is older to live in a smaller space and have less. Uh, but I don't, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not uh, hung up on it. You know, and I, I think sometimes people go take things too far. And, and I think a lot of the people who call themselves minimalists have probably gone to the extremes. You know, if you're doing it, you know, let's say I have a friend and, uh, he is um, he's uh, divorced, and his the kids stay with the mom mostly, and mm-hmm. then he visits when he visits. I don't know, but he they don't live with him, and right. and he has been you know kind of hankering to go out and uh, get his wanderlust fixed in fix in because he didn't you know ride around in, on trains when he was in, in his twenties. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and he wanted to, and he wanted, yeah, I was in the air force 20 years, so we were moving all the time. So I did get my wonderless fix too, but he is in his forties now and he's now with a, uh, his girlfriend. And I think it was just like for the last year or so they've been, um, selling stuff, you know, and they're not buying any new stuff. And now he's put his house on the market. And for the next couple of years after he sells his house, their plan is to only own what will fit in a backpack or computer laptop bag and one carry-on rolly bag. Um, and mm-hmm. then just travel around for a couple of years. Um, yeah. So that, you know, but, I, you know, he doesn't want to do it forever. You know, he just wants right. to. Right. I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. If, right. I don't know if that's minimalism. I think oh, no, that's I don't, more an intentional, an intentional choice. Right. To go travel. Right. Right. You know. You're right. You're right. And, and part that, of that, that may needs include living minimally for a period of time. Right. Right. You know, I, I think minimalism is a 
as a life, a long-term lifestyle choice, right? A, a right. To consume less and do more things that are um, that allow you to have space, both physical space, um, mental space, and, and and spiritual space, right? In your life, rather than always being busy and uh, and cluttered either with physical stuff or or technological stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and right. When I read your book, it all made sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of that. Um, but the things that jumped out at me were, you know, like the TV, that's still, you know, the crutch that I want to work on now. Um, and, uh, and probably I could do with less internet. Maybe I'm not as bad as most people. I, I think the yeah. people that uh, that grew up, uh, sorry, that were born or you know raised when you know there was a Facebook, they're they're having they're getting addicted at a very early age. Their myelinated circuits include an internet that's really fast with YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Right. Yeah, right. So it's all part of who they are. You it know, is. And my it daughter, is. I've I've kind of isolated her from that a little bit. I haven't allowed her to have her own. Computer yet? You know, she's ten, and she keeps wanting. You know, her mom bought her an iPod, but I put a lot of restrictions on it, so she can basically just play stuff that's already been loaded. Right. Um, but uh, I haven't. But she doesn't have her own phone. Of, not yet, and no computer yet. And you know, it's getting closer to the time where I'm going to have to let her do more of that. Right. But part of the reason I've I've kept her from that is I don't want her to, you know, be quite as Hooked. Uh, inundated right. with that, yeah. all that stuff at a young age. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I would say as as much as you can, try to keep her away from the social medias as long as you can, which is you know an impossible task when she gets to teenager. Yeah. you know, so yeah. you can't push against it forever, but. Yikes, man. You know, if I yeah. could go back and undo it. The only reason I, I do social media is for business, you know, to that, to do promotions. Me too, mostly. Mostly. Yeah. I do, uh, on, I use Facebook kind of half business and half personal, a little right, bit right. of political beliefs, you know. But, Understood. Um, yeah, but, but all the other social media I use is just strictly for for sharing things from my blogs and sharing my books and that kind of thing. Yeah. On Twitter, I'm all business basically, you know, it's, that's just for promoting the show and Facebook. I really haven't figured out how to make that work for the business. Whenever I try to do something business related on there, it seems like I'm peeing in the pool. I don't know if you've ever, yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) You know, it's funny. You say that I can post, some silly picture of a kitten, right? And and get a hundred oh, likes, I know. or post something political and get a thread of two hundred comments. Yeah. But if I post something from my own blog, right? Then then you get yelled I, at. It it's just like, sits there. Right, right. Or you know that's what it is. Is is Facebook now? Is uh, it's optimized? It doesn't show even people that are your friends. It doesn't. It it oh, curates. It curates your stuff. Yeah. And, and it'll show yeah. everybody all of your pictures because that's that's what it wants. That's what it thinks people want to see. So if you really want to get attention, you have to put a, a goofy looking selfie. 
right. I, I just, I, I had a fun moment the other day because uh, for my podcast launch, I was giving away, um, what was it, a Fire HD6 that I just happened to have, you know, about the same time. Because my wife were, mm-hmm. my wife and I were changing credit cards, and we had to use up the old credit card points, right? So mm-hmm. we were like, we usually just saved them all up and used them for air travel. But because we were doing the switch, we were looking for things that we could get with the points and then sell right away, right? And we thought, meh, right. a, a HD Fire, yeah, that'll probably sell for really close to what we got it for, right? Um, but then I was like, huh, that's going to show up about the same time my podcast. Anyway, long story short, I did a giveaway and, yeah. uh, yesterday was the last day. So I, I took a really stupid, goofy picture of me looking at it longingly <laughs> and said only 35 hours left. And I did get a, a right. I, I got a couple of comments more than usual because again, right. Facebook is weird to me. I don't get it. It, it is. I, I think Sometimes I wonder if they know, you know, they're not, you know, the, the whole system kind of knows when you're posting your own, trying to promote yourself. Right. And it and, wants to get paid for and, that. And, it, and they, they want to get paid. Right. So, so the, 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 yeah. The algorithm is, is basically going to say. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the algorithm is just going to laugh at you and say, yeah, you can post that. And then it'll suggest that you boost it. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, and Which by I've the way, yeah, I did too. And I've tried and once or twice, and it really doesn't do a lot. A whole bunch you, of Bangladeshi people will like what you boost. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who yeah. have absolutely no interest in what you're doing, but they like it. <laughs> right, right. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an interesting world. It's, it's all changed, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yes, it has. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? You and I, I think we have an opportunity to, to bridge the gap if we want to, to, uh, to, you know, say, you know, stay here and, and, and work with the younger folks in their 20s and 30s. And, uh, sure, and and help them out, you know, and say, you know, this is how you talk to the really old guys. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, like to no, be, absolutely. They like to be called sir, yeah. you know. They they don't communicate in the same way. They're no, learning no, a no. whole different system of communication, and it's right. not there's less face to face interpersonal communication. Right. And, and and with that comes a different kind of manners and yeah different way of addressing people well and they, so, yeah. and they and they like to think of everything as peer to peer and and not yeah. higher there's no hierarchy and everybody's the same where we grew right. up and and you know that's the boss and that's the boss's boss and oh that boss has a boss and everybody's got a boss and shut up in color you know <laughs> right <laughs> right i know i was just in missouri and it's interesting um there's still, and I guess they were—they weren't the younger people. There were people my age right. that, that would call me sir, because uh, you know that's more common in the South, I think. You know, and I'm yeah. kind of in Southern Missouri, and and I, my daughter was like, "How come everybody's calling you sir, Dad?" You know, she would never seen much of that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I went through something like that. Uh, I did a temp gig just recently at an elementary school, right, and and. It felt so weird because after like the first day or something, uh, I realized that I was going to have to start referring to myself as Mr. Smith. 
Um, right. And I've never, ever done that. Now, you know, in the Air Force, I called myself Sergeant Smith all the time, and that was fine. Sure. You know, that's just who I was. But saying, uh, it's almost like my wife's Japanese, and in, in Japan, mm-hmm. you never refer to yourself with an honorific, right? And I think that sort of gotten, you know, like, so you, you, when you refer to yourself, you say this, uh, I'm, I'm Jeff, or, right. but you don't say I'm Mr. Jeff or Mr. Smith. That it, right. it's like you're honoring yourself and that's just wrong. It's not done. But right. here it's perfectly acceptable to call yourself Mr. Smith. It just feels weird to me. Right. Yeah, I, I teach. And so I've, I've been called Mr. Erickson quite a bit. I tell my students, so you can call me Dan. You can call me Mr. Erickson. Um, uh, here there's a little bit of a culture where people just call me Erickson. Uh, right. fine, too. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. They do that in the military, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Hey, this is anyway, yeah. this has been great. Let's go through your stuff yeah. again before we uh, before we close up. Um, so sure, yeah. your your main site now is hipdigs dot com, and that's H I P D I G G S right dot com. Yes. Uh, so I'm linking that in my show notes, and then. I also found a history of all your works, and I linked to that page, and then I also linked to A Train Called Forgiveness and At the Crossing of Justice and Mercy, your two books. Anything else yeah, you, want, and you want to talk about? Those are good. Um, those links may change in a few months, though. Okay, that's fine. So yeah. I, think, I think what might work better is if you link... Um, Directly to the Amazon pages for the two books. Perfect. I can do that. And, and maybe not do the history page because, like I said, I'm going You're to taking it down. redesign the Dan sure. Erickson. I'm going to take it down for a couple months. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and let links die away and, and restart it as more of a, um, a, a site for me as a musician. Perfect. And, and then focus on the big site. I'm doing that too. I just let like three or four domains expire. Yeah, I'm, I'm letting a couple. I have a yeah. simple writer and simple blogger. Right. I've got them posted out through this year, and then I'm going to just let them sit there until they expire in the middle of next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's it's it's more about cleaning out the plate, right? <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I not... learned a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I they're not valuable. About... You know, it's just you're done. Right. You know, you can't do. You just, I can't do that much. You know, here right. I'm saying I'm a minimalist, but I'm I'm trying to do so much that it's silly. <laughs> and, and so you start hearing yourself so, list all these things. You go, whoa, wait a minute, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, and, and I've I learned a lot in the last with these last few sites I created about how I want the um the, the whole site to be organized. And my original Dan Erickson net site was never organized from the very beginning because I didn't right. know what I was doing. I got a blog and say, this is cool. You know, and now I can see there, there are ways to organize a site very simply that make it much easier for people to get around. Got it. And so that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to redo it and make it much easier to get around. Perfect. Well, thank you, Dan. This has been great. I appreciate you uh, stopping by to see me and taking your time out from uh, you and your daughter time. That's awesome. And using up your minutes on your phone. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I appreciate you uh, offering the interview, and I look forward to um, 
seeing how it turns out. Yeah, and yeah, I'll let you know before thanks, it comes you know, out. Okay. All right. You have a good one, man. All right. You too, Jeff. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. <laughs>